Alright. Let's coup this thing. To coup or not to coup? That is the question that we will be answering in this video. And if you're man enough, the answer is yes, you can. Whether you're a CIA operative, a wannabe dictator, or just a bloodthirsty warlord with a box full of AKs and a dream, a coup d'etat is your fastest way to secure a throne all your own. There's no election, there's no line of succession, and really, is there anything cooler than being able to say you stole a whole goddamn country at gunpoint? Of course, a coup is a high-risk, high-reward strategy. There are no prizes for second place. There are winners, and there are dead guys. Successful coups have been on the decline for the last 50 years, and that's because most of them haven't followed my foolproof seven-point plan. I have conducted a pretty much rigorous statistical analysis of everything that can be considered a legitimate coup attempt since 1945. I've crunched the numbers, assessed the assassinations, and rummaged through the regime changes to create this guide. How to do a coup in seven easy steps. Look, I'm going to level with you. If you are dead set on cooing your own country, your chances for victory are not good. Out of all 989 global coup attempts I have personally assessed, around 444 were successful. Now, that is a 44.83% success rate. And if you like those odds, then hey, you might be just the kind of guy who can make a coup happen. But the successful coups are weighted towards the distant past. 1955 to 1975 was the golden age of cooing, and successful attempts have been in stark decline ever since. Throughout most of the 21st century, your chances for triumph were lower than they ever have been. That's the bad news. The good news is that recently, successful coups have been on the rise. Bully for you. And if you identify and manufacture the correct conditions for your coup, then your chances rise considerably. Cooing a country is a lot like buying a house. The fastest way to get one is with someone else's money. So it's best to get your coup pre-approved by a regional power, or at least bankrolled by their secret service. This way, it'll be easier to sell it as a popular revolt, rather than the bloody, body-strewn power grab that it may well become. For the last 60 years, America has been the best coup partner a budding dictator could ask for. 69% of US-sponsored coups succeeded during the Cold War, and almost all of them targeted democracies. Nice. America is truly the Ronaldo of regime change. I mean, just look at their track record. See? And that's why our first case study comes straight from the CIA's own playbook, and shows why having friends in spy places is a coup leader's wet dream. In 1954, the CIA covertly arranged the coup d'etat of Guatemala on behalf of Carlos Castillo Armas, who arrived in his home country with nothing but a dream, 480 CIA-trained soldiers, and a mustache style best described as the double Hitler. He ousted the democratically elected President Jacobo Arbenz Guzman. In 1953, the president expropriated 200,000 acres of unused land, and this was a largely popular move in Guatemala. This land reform redistributed all this uncultivated land to approximately 100,000 peasants. But this policy was less popular with the United Fruit Company, who owned most of the land. Specifically, its majority shareholders, John and Alan Dulles, two American brothers who also happened to be Secretary of State and Director of the CIA. 
Carlos's CIA-funded forces invaded Guatemala from Honduras and first suffered some pretty gnarly setbacks. But sabotage and the veiled threat of U.S. military intervention swung it for the Coosters. The Cold War superpower instituted a naval blockade and conducted intimidating flyovers to protect the CIA director's bottom line. It certainly worked in double Hitler's favor as Carlos entered Guatemala City on July 7, 1954, becoming the country's brand spanking new military dictator. The communist government has been overthrown by the people. And for that, we congratulate you and the people of Guatemala for the support they have given. Carlos ruled uncontested for some total of three years because he was then shot and killed by a member of his own presidential guard. Castillo Amas took power three years ago in an armed revolt against a left-wing government. Washington welcomed his coup d'etat, but recent talk of corruption has made Washington less sure of its new ally. In 1968, Edward N. Lutwak wrote this, Coup d'etat, a practical handbook, a pocket-sized user's guide that practically laid out the best practices for palace-smashing wannabes. Just four years after it was published, the book was allegedly found on the bloodied corpse of General Mohammed Ofkir, a ringleader in a failed attempt to overthrow Morocco. It has since been revised several times, most recently in 2015, but never with the advice to maybe keep the book itself out of sight. Which is why I'd also advise watching this video with a VPN. Now I heard that the best way to keep your coup a secret is to secure yourself online with Surfshark VPN. There's no elegant way to say this, so I'll just say it. If you are planning to take over a nation with no outside help, you will want your future fiefdom to be poor as shit. A place where the average citizen would view a toothless donkey as a suspiciously extravagant gift. Ideally, most of your future subjects will live rurally and also probably be illiterate. This will ensure minimal resistance outside the capital city. But your citizens still should know what's going on in the wider world, getting their information from old school mass media like television or radio. Otherwise, how will they know that you're the boss now? Now, states explicitly protected by a larger regional power are a no-go. East Germany, 53, Grenada, 83, Yemen, 2014. All examples of attempted coups or uprisings that failed because they were foiled by a larger, more powerful country stepping in, either by killing the coosters or, in Yemen's case, plunging the country into a decade-long proxy war. But there is a caveat for this rule, and I like to call it the French exception. If your chosen country contains a French military garrison or is in the Franco sphere of influence, not only is it a feasible target, it is probably top-tier cooing real estate, as the French military will even surrender in countries that aren't France. But more importantly, France has historically run these countries so shittily that they are structurally susceptible to military muscle. Let me explain. <clears throat> Chad, Gabon, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, and Burkina Faso all have at least one French military garrison. Actually, reduce that to the past tense for Niger and Burkina Faso, as they've recently booted the French out in the last 12 months. And there's a reason for that. Thanks to their history as former French colonies, these countries have some unique structural weaknesses that make them eminently coupable. And they're all located in the Sahel, 
a mostly arid band of continent-spanning countries where the only thing that crops up consistently is coups. For the last 20 years, and especially for the last 10 months, there have been several cookie-cutter coups in the Sahel, where military strongmen are deposing military less strongmen with a batting average better than the going global rate. In 2023 alone, the region has seen five coup attempts, two of which brought new regimes to power. And that's because the conditions in the Sahel are already perfect, or rather sufficiently shitty, for coups to take place. There is rampant government corruption, food insecurity, and a mostly rural population, more concerned with their own survival than with who's in power. So what does Europe's biggest loser have to do with all this? Well, during France's chaotic decolonization process, it set up porous, contested borders that didn't accurately reflect the various tribal loyalties of the region. But in some material ways, France never really left its former colonies. The most common currency in the coup belt is still the CF franc, pegged to the euro and controlled by the French finance ministry. And French military garrisons are still dotted around like cannabis dispensaries in a South Cali surf town. Most damning of all, the outgoing colonial power set up paramilitary police forces based on their own gendarmerie. Independent and heavily armed gangs that might as well be specifically designed to conduct coups and keep authoritarian rulers in power. And France has greatly benefited from this systematic instability, securing the region's natural resources at cutthroat discounts from their military-backed dictators. Omar Bongo ruled Gabon from 1967 until his death in 2009 and stayed in place largely because of his cosy relationship with France. The French military presence kept Bongo's regime solid, while French oil companies sucked the ground dry. France got cheap oil, while the Bongo family bought up some of Paris's most expensive luxury real estate. This is all to say, the Sahel's loss is your gain. This is the region where your coup is most likely to succeed, and if you don't win in one, you can just cross the border and try again. But if all this Sahel business seems a bit bleak, and you want to coup somewhere with some drinkable tap water, then you're going to have to do a bit more prep work. Just because you'll be skipping the election portion of coming to power, that doesn't mean you won't be campaigning. This is the vegetable-eating portion of regime change before you get to move on to the delicious, bloody slab of A5 Wagyu that is staging the coup itself. On September the 11th, 1973, the democratically elected Salvador Allende was deposed in a US-backed coup. This coup really had it all. The theatrical flair, the speed, the efficiency, and the bombing of a presidential palace with a fighter jet. But before the country got to this point, it took years of prep work, and this is what you should be taking note of. The first thing you're going to want to do is grind the economy to a halt, or at least convince the business-owning class that that's what's going to happen. In 1970, US President Richard Nixon and immortal Lich King Henry Kissinger agreed that Allende's new socialist government had to go. According to notes written by CIA Director Richard Helms, they wanted to make the economy scream. The US cut Chile off from international financial institutions like the World Bank and the Inter-America Development Bank, all while copper exports plummeted and global inflation roared. The CIA also covertly funded the devastating 1972 truckers' strike, which froze the transportation of goods in the country. 
leading to nationwide shortages and even greater inflation. The Chilean government was forced to turn on the money printers to prevent a total collapse of living standards, sending inflation soaring by 333%. Allende's once popular administration now looked pretty creaky, even to those who still supported him, while those that didn't only saw an opportunity. The coup was led by General Pinochet, an adjunta of generals who were convinced that overthrowing their paymasters was a necessary step to restore order. He ruled for nearly 16 years, during which he executed thousands, tortured tens of thousands, and embezzled millions. Say what you will about Pinochet, but when opportunity came a-knocking, he smashed the door off its hinges with a welcome wagon. A screaming economy, the threat of foreign intervention, and political polarization are all telltale signs that your coup could be victorious. When you do show up on the TV and announce that you're the big man now, you don't want people's response to look like this. A stronger hand. Who the fuck is this guy? It should look more like this. Oh, this fucking guy. So before you do your coup, you're gonna have to make a name for yourself. You know, get videoed building a bridge, kissing some babies and handing out food and bars of soap to the poor and stinky. You need to be subtle though. You can't be completely anonymous but you also don't want to make it obvious to the current leadership that you're campaigning for their job. Hugo Chavez took a novel approach to fixing his anonymity problem, using a failed coup to get the attention of the Venezuelan public. In the early hours of February 4th, he led five army units to seize Caracas military installations and stormed the presidential palace. I'd give this coup 10 points for style and a generous four for strategy. You see, there was a little uncertainty over which military units had actually switched sides. When an armored vehicle attempted to ram the palace door down, they were attacked by guards who had foreknowledge of the coup. Three presidential bodyguards were killed, and the president himself hid under an overcoat and eventually escaped. At least 143 people were killed during the active stage of the coup. It was a messy, drawn-out affair that ended with Chavez's arrest. But the establishment forced him to appear on television, telling him to announce that the coup was over in the hope that he could quell the chaos, which he did, but he also used it as an opportunity to address the public. Nosotros acá en Caracas no logramos controlar el poder. Ustedes lo hicieron muy bien por allá, pero ya es tiempo. The unpopular establishment had just given the cocky Chavez an opportunity to campaign. After a brief stint in jail, he continued his charm offensive into electoral politics. He was democratically elected president, much to the annoyance of the United States. He turned a failed coup into a spectacular success. But he is the exception rather than the rule. Many a military siege has failed because generals overestimate their popularity among the portion of the population that aren't paid to salute them every morning. In 1961, France was in danger of being couped itself as the country was divided over how hard they should continue to crush the French colony of Algeria. After nearly seven years of war with the National Liberation Front, 
President Charles de Gaulle was sick of it all and was basically prepping to grant the colony independence. Most of France agreed, but someone had forgotten to ask these four retired French generals. Supported by a few army units, the generals made a big deal out of capturing key sites in Algiers, winning the support of some French settlers and basically no one else. General Charles broadcast a radio message announcing the takeover and attempted to recruit the military in France to their cause. The fact that the generals failed to get the party started in the actual country that they were cooing was a massive, obvious failure. President de Gaulle quickly condemned the generals on television and arrested any potential collaborators, unifying the country against the coup before the smell of coup had wafted across the French border. Notre rôle et notre place en Afrique compromis et par qui Hélas 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 Le putsch des Générales was très shit from a strategic perspective. How these guys ever became generals is anyone's guess. Then again, they were generals in the French army. Think of your coup like a hand of poker. Army generals are your aces. Uh, Air Force bosses are like your kings. Navy bosses are queens. Unless your capital city is coastal, then they could be more valuable. Then you've got your jacks, your heads of security services or paramilitary leaders. All very useful, and just one or a few of these could be a winning hand. Of course, you can try bluffing your way into power without any high-value cards, but this nearly never works. Coups conducted without any military backing are known as a dissident coup, or as I like to call them, a big f***ing mistake. Out of all 989 coup attempts in our data set, 293 could be classed as dissident coups, and only 25 of those were triumphs. The line between a dissident and military coup is also often quite blurry. Of those 25 successes, 14 could still be classed as partly military banned. This data alone should be enough to dissuade you from going the dissident route. But this has become a bit of a, uh, let's say, pertinent question in recent times, as a few demagogic dimwits have bet it all on a pair of two. America, 2021. Brazil, 2023. Both terrible attempts, but they were both so shite that they did at least give their leaders some plausible deniability. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. When you storm the palace with a bunch of unarmed, unemployed losers and no generals on your side, you kind of haven't even done a proper coup. You've just organized a shit rave for cards in your country's seat of power without providing any porta potties. Insurrectionist, look up the word. Are you going to follow the guy who's naked, tattooed nipples? Making a play for the palace with just one general in hand is really cooing by the seat of your pants. Your chances are slim, but the power you win will be better, as there's fewer stuffed shirts to share it with. Obviously, it massively helps if you are that general, but even a little military clout can get you pretty far. In 1971, General Idi Amin led a coup while the incumbent president Obote was abroad, ousting him from power and securing himself a respectable eight years of uncontested rule. If I found you not to attend cabinet three times without reason, you are out of government. Idi Amin 
might have played the game alone, but he smartly conducted his coup while his opponent was away from the table. Muammar Gaddafi made a similar decision, rocking up the palace steps while King Idris of Libya was receiving medical treatment in Turkey. The coup was completely bloodless, swift, and well-organized. And Gaddafi wasn't even a general, and nor were his collaborators, but he had recruited a number of military bigwigs into the free officers movement. This is sort of like the poker equivalent of uh, free fours. I don't know, I, actually, I've actually never played poker. He served as chairman once he took charge, taking the chill title in order to show equality with the officers he had cooed alongside. But Muammar ruled long enough to go mad with power, but it was either that or brain poisoning from all the plastic surgery he got. And he was eventually violently ousted from power in 2011, where he was forced to become, let's say, intimately familiar with a bayonet. <laughs> Not the most noble end, but he got over 40 years of uncontested rule until then. And as a coup leader, well, to be honest, that's about the best you can hope for. Anyway, the lesson to take from these two can be remembered with a rhyme. If you're gonna make the one general play, try to make it while the incumbent is away. Obviously, the more generals that you've got, the better your chances, and the slimmer the deck that loyalist forces have to pull from. You can make a fairly strong play with just a couple generals, but in one sense, this is the riskiest strategy of all maneuvers, because if you and the loyalists are basically evenly matched, you could slide your country into a civil war. This is kind of what's happening right now in Sudan. In April, clashes broke out between the Sudanese armed forces and the nearly as powerful rapid support force. The RSF attempted to capture key government sites in the capital, but their slow progress meant they reached the presidential palace at the same time as loyalist forces, which must have been very awkward. A straightforward coup devolved into a bloody and prolonged civil conflict where no one is really the winner. Although you wouldn't know that from international reporting, which centered on the escape of Western diplomatic figures and not much else. Secure the support of several military bigwigs into one hand and you've got yourself the equivalent of a royal flush. Brazil, 64, Greece, 67, and Chile, 73. All these coups were ostensibly successful and they were all orchestrated by a well-organized junta. Besides being a really cool word, a junta is a government led by a committee of military leaders. Pinochet's junta was the perfect hand, comprised of himself, the head of the army, the head of the Navy, the head of the Air Force, and the Director General of the Cabaneros. More recent junta takeovers include Thailand in 2014 and Myanmar in 2021. The junta method is by far the most reliable, especially if you plan on taking over a country with a large population. But it also requires the most compromises, as you will be sharing power with a bunch of military dickheads. Before we move on from this over-labored poker metaphor, I have to mention that there can be jokers in the pack. Important figures outside of the official hierarchy, and rarely in play, but in certain versions of the game, they can be invaluable. The head of the presidential guard being a classic joker. Hard to win due to their usual loyalty to the body they're guarding, but not impossible to utilize. 
During the 2023 coup in Niger, President Mohamed Bazoum was captured by the commander of the Presidential Guard on behalf of a military junta. Since the country's independence from France in 1960, ruling authorities have been flung from power four times, with a bunch of failed attempts to boot. This latest coup is another blow for stability in the Sahel. But at least this time, the new regime has figured that kicking the French out might be in their best interest. Okay, congratulations. The country is unstable, the leadership is weak, the generals have your back, and the people know who you are, and either don't completely hate you or shit their pants at the sight of you. You might think you're ready to coup, right? Well, don't sharpen that machete yet, buddy, because there's one final crucial step that, if performed poorly, could crash your coup before it's even started. Recruiting your best boys. Choose your warrior. The little green men, the boots on the ground. These lads will be rolling deep with you up the palace steps. They should be loyal as Labradors and preferably about half as smart. They will be blocking the roads, sabotaging infrastructure and storming parliament. They will be undertaking massive risk for relatively little reward. Finding the right guys to defile the sanctity of the state is no easy feat, but narrowing your recruiting pool is actually quite simple. You'll want to make a list of every military division close to the capital city. This extends to paramilitaries and well-armed cops. Now, you'd think that the larger your unit, the better their utility in a coup, but you'd be dead wrong and, you know, dead. Good coups take place over hours, not days. So you want flexibility with as little potential for communication breakdown as possible. Larger military battalions are dependent on complex command structures and can easily be slowed down through sabotage. So your core group of coup-making homies is as close to the capital as possible and is either well-equipped and relatively small or medium-sized with a simple command structure. Once you've identified the team or teams you'll use in your coup, you need to make contact. Edward Lutwak suggests that you need to convert 10 company commanders and five effective leaders at the HQ. Everyone else should fall in line once orders are issued, or at least the defectors will be so few in number that it won't matter. Now, approaching your first recruits is the single riskiest moment in your entire operation. A standard CIA tactic was to identify officers who had been passed over for promotions, the bitter, aging captains and colonels who will see your coup as their last chance to rise through the ranks. Your ideal recruit is very loyal to you, but not so loyal to the country that they'll refuse to desecrate its most sacred spots. These lads that you're recruiting will be risking their lives, the lives of their families, and possibly putting their testicles on a crash course with a car battery. They either have to be politically motivated to overthrow the very system they've sworn to uphold, or dumb and greedy enough to sack it all off. In 1991, hardline members of the Soviet government attempted a military coup of the Kremlin. The Gang of Eight, led by the Vice President and the head of the KGB, orchestrated an impromptu tank party in Moscow and even managed to arrest the real leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. But the military recruits refused to suppress resistance at the Russian White House, allowing future President Boris Yeltsin to mount their tanks and make them all look like pussies. Secretly recruiting coosters requires a shitload of subtlety. Even if they are up for it, they might think you're the Secret Service, trying to catch them out. 
So you need to be careful to identify the highest but weakest link in the chain of command and start your charm offensive there. So I was just wondering if you'd um, ever considered overthrowing the government. Did you see what went wrong there? Let's try that again. I just think the politicians are wrecking this country. Do you ever think that maybe the protectors of the people need to restore order and take us back to our former glory? I'm in. Much better. Extra points for appealing to the soldiers' nostalgia and personal desire for glory. Potential recruits should also be made to assume that their superiors have already been recruited. And as you recruit more members, this will have the added advantage of also being true. It will inspire confidence in the coup and prevent potential betrayers from reporting it as they won't know who to trust. Some may even be too scared to say no. Still, they will have a lot to gain by betraying you and will have a number of opportunities to do so. In fact, we have to just assume that a few of them will do just that. So you'll have to recruit in a very specific way to mitigate the damage of any leaks. Once they are definitely on your team, each recruit should only be given the details of their own task and nothing more. Military men are used to being on a need-to-know basis, and if they do sell you out, it means only part of your plan will be revealed. Which is why it's also important to never reveal the date of your operation, at least not until you're days away from rolling deep. In the 1980s, it looked like conditions were perfect for a coup in Romania. Massive austerity measures had been made under Ceausescu's communist government, and, you know, he was just generally wildly unpopular because he was a knob, leading to a few high-ranking soldiers to consider a coup. The date for the coup was set somewhere between the 15th and 17th of October, when Ceausescu was on a state visit to West Germany. So far, so good. The principal army unit was based in Bucharest and had a huge munitions dump secured by a lieutenant colonel. But somewhere in the coup plotting process, there had been a leak. When the date approached, the military unit assigned to carry out the plan was sent to harvest corn instead. The coup leaders were questioned, but never arrested, revealing that part of the coup plan had been leaked, but the wider details were still fuzzy. While this was an unsuccessful attempt, the correct recruitment procedures were followed. So the coup planners remained in power and their testicles remained free from a 12 volt charge. Okay, now for the fun part. The day has come. You and the boys are locked and loaded and ready to go. <laughs> Shit. Time is of the essence, though. Coups are not like wars. There is no time to adjust strategy or send your men in waves. You either go hard or go home. If war is a multi-round, bare-knuckle brawl between two equally matched opponents, then a coup is a knife in the heart of a sleeping giant. You either get it done fast, or you get smushed into man-flavored goo. Okay, first things first, you are going to need a few of these cheap, reliable, two-way radios, because if everything goes right at the start of your coup, every other form of communication is going to be sabotaged or seriously unreliable. When it comes to weapons, the AK-47 is the Coca-Cola of coup equipment, past and present, and there's a good reason for it. It's reliable, it's cheap, Easily available and easy to use. Anyone with arms can operate an AK, and due to their mass manufacture, getting a hold of them covertly won't be a challenge. 
theoretically. If you're killing a rich or well-armed country, then I'd recommend upgrading to an M16 or one of its derivatives, like the M4 carbine. Having a brigade of tanks is a total necessity for cooing a developed state. Less because you'll need to fire off a couple rounds, but more for the visual confirmation that you are in charge. Nothing says, I'm the captain now, like parking a few tons of steel on the White House lawn. For less developed countries, like those in the Sahel, a few dozen armoured vehicles will do. Now, every coup is different. Each will have specific geographic requirements, depending on the capital city's structure. So I'll be guiding you through a theoretical coup of a random city. Just, just a random city like London, England. Okay, the big thing about staging a coup is that basically everything has to happen simultaneously so you can maintain maximum confusion until the moment where you're in charge. So if a target is going to take a while to get to or take ages to secure, those teams will need to set off first and try to remain as anonymous as possible. Small teams will need to be deployed to sabotage telecommunications and secure internet exchange points. This will be tough, but it needs to be done. At this point, the state will know something is up. So you should already be halfway to your destination and your targets should have no way to escape. You will need to establish robust roadblocks at every entry road of the capital. No small task if it's a large city. Easier though if it's a coastal city like Helsinki or Bangkok where the water can do part of the work for you. This is to slow or even subvert the arrival of loyalist troops and to prevent the escape of our target. If you were to theoretically overthrow the currently unelected leader of the UK, turning the M25 ring road into a car park would be easy with a few well-placed blockages. Modern times present a unique opportunity for subterfuge on this point. If you were theoretically cooing London, I would suggest disguising your sabotaging forces as irritating protesters. Many a coup has turned to poo because they couldn't control the roads. Gambia, 81. Libya, 93, are two textbook examples where the road warriors failed to clog the city's arteries. The attempted military coup of Turkey in 2016 failed for a number of reasons, but its inability to completely control Istanbul's major transportation roads was a huge stumbling block. Government forces used mass media and social networks to mobilize public support. Crowds flooded the street and blocked the movement of the coup forces. The mistake these little rascals made was going way too loud way too soon, making big, very cooey moves before they had secured the apparatus of the state or neutralized Erdogan. In the age of mass media, you've got to be sneaky. People can figure out what's going on a lot more quickly. But... It's also easier to confuse them. Remember, the job of your road warriors isn't to start a motorway massacre. They are just there to stop the loyalists from starting a fight in the first place. If you can confuse the loyalist forces enough to convince them to join your roadblock, this would be your perfect scenario. And if you've maintained enough confusion up until this point, the loyalists won't even know who they're responding to or who the enemy is. This is probably what happened during Progozin and the Wagner Group's wacky road trip to Moscow in the summer of 2023. Loyalist roadblocks had no idea who was friend and who was foe and just kind of let the paramilitaries through. Whether the whole thing was a coup or not is still kind of debatable, but the subterfuge that led to the showdown was textbook. You'll also need to halt train travel and shut down the airports. 
Trains are easy, though. All you got to do is blow up some train tracks with a skeleton crew of protester-disguised coosters. Disabling London's tube network largely works the same way. And if you do it during rush hour, you'll be doing everyone a favour anyway. Airports are slightly trickier, as they can take a lot of time and manpower to overwhelm. If you don't have the resources to spare, the cheat code is to simply park a few armoured vehicles on each runway, and once you're in charge, you can just shut them down by executive order. Now, this should go without saying, but you need to be there. While coups can be conducted remotely, if you are not there to direct things, the line of succession can become fuzzy. There is always the possibility of a coup within a coup, where one of your trusted lieutenants may decide that, hey, on the day, that throne over there looks quite comfy. On October 26, 1979, South Korean President Park Chung-hee was enjoying one of his ten monthly banquets with his closest advisers at the KCIA's safe house. However, festivities were cut short when the director of the KCIA, Kim Jae-kyu, rudely interrupted the banquet by shooting President Park in the chest. In the ensuing chaos, Kim shot a few other guests, arrested the surviving attendees, and started to contact various military figures in an attempt to gain support for his new regime. He started driving to the KCIA's headquarters, when he suddenly diverted to the Army HQ instead, so he could secure their help in declaring martial law. If you've been following my coup guide closely, you will know why this was a grave error. Do your recruiting early and remain where you have most concrete control. Had Kim returned to the KCIA headquarters where he was the unequivocal boss, he might have clinched it. Instead, he walked straight into the lion's den of Army HQ, assuming that his own military appointees would just be on board with his impulsive act of regicide. They were not, and he was arrested. Kim is a case study in catastrophic coup failure. You cannot skip the military recruitment phase, as generals don't like surprises, especially messy ones that involve picking up presidential brain bits. Do not kill the incumbent, not if you can help it. No matter how unpopular the leader you're popping is, killing them hardly projects stability. And it makes you look a little illegitimate and desperate, if I'm being honest. There is a line between cooing and treason, and uh, you'll be walking it like a tightrope. Act too impulsively, and you might find yourself hanging from that rope, which is exactly what happened to Kim. He was convicted of treason and executed on the 24th of May, 1980. If only he'd learn from the guy he killed. Back when he was a major general, Park Chung-hee mobilized several army units and recruited senior military officers for his coup in 1961. He seized key public buildings across Seoul. The army captured the media outlets and shut every major transportation hub in the city while the prime minister fled. There was some light resistance when the operation started, but rebels held the hills around the capital, firing on government positions and installations. If you've been paying attention, you'll be right in thinking this was a perfectly orchestrated coup. In fact, I'd say it's the gold standard. But there were challenges. The plot had been leaked in the early hours of the morning, giving counterintelligence commands time to dispatch military police and arrest some of the likely culprits. Major General Park, however, was shrewd, moving to the 6th District Army HQ, where he took personal control and salvaged the plan. Now that 
is how you coup it. Park proclaimed himself president in 1963, leading South Korea without contest through an incredible period of economic growth and industrialization. His autocratic rule lasted for nearly 18 years, and he enjoyed many a banquet until a poorly prepared Kusta served him a lead-based dessert in 1979. Once you and your ride-or-die broskies are inside the capital city, you have two primary objectives and several secondary ones associated with the primary two. I know this is confusing, but if you got this far, you know, deal with it. It's about to get more confusing. The first is the most obvious and most fun. Capture the executive and assume control. The second is to capture and secure the country's most trusted media outlet. So if you were cooing London, you'd be taking the PM hostage at 10 Downing Street and announcing your junta from the BBC. Convenient, as they are five stops away from one another on the tube, or just 15 minutes away via armoured convoy. Your most trusted and most battle-ready units will arrive at the executive first and take whoever lives there hostage. Now, this is the spot where you will be meeting some guaranteed resistance. So you'll either have to overwhelm them with sheer numbers or, you know, blast some fools. You will at least have to take out a few bodyguards, but try to ensure corpses are created inside, away from the prying eyes of the international press. Speaking of which, while this is all going on, you and your boys have the slightly easier task of securing the state broadcaster. Easier in a logistical sense, as you are unlikely to receive much resistance from a bunch of Oxbridge nonce-enablers, but harder from a technical standpoint, as you will need technical ability to broadcast your initial takeover announcement. In the age of social media, you might be tempted to just record your message on your phone, but going live from the state broadcaster lends you so much legitimacy that it is still an essential step. Once that's done, you and your boys are going to have to keep control of the media centre and keep it running for future announcements. While this is going on, smaller strike teams should be sabotaging every other broadcaster in the capital. Channel 4, ITV, London-based radio stations all need to be offline once you start rolling towards number 10. Now for the secondary objectives. While these are not technically essential, the more of these you check off your coup list, the better your chances are for lasting success. Once you've secured the head of state, you're going to work down through the hierarchy of actual material power and kidnap those guys. In less chaotic times, the Vice President or the Chancellor of the Exchequer might technically be second in command, but when it's coup o'clock, the real power players are anyone who can mount an effective opposition against you. Recognisable political figures, military leaders, police chiefs, but most importantly, the Secretary of State or the Defence Secretary, or whatever the equivalent is in your country. So by the time you arrive at the Executive, some of your best armed buddies should already be a pistol's length away from all these figures. Generals are harder to reach and may not be worth the effort, but if you can capture them in their family home, you can either arrest them or, you know, kill them. If you were theoretically killing the UK, I'd recommend sending some of your best and most brutal boys to the Carlton Club, the private members club popular with high-ranking Tories, where you're likely to catch some cabinet members about to chow down on their ex-royale. You should also send some strike teams to the family homes of high-ranking politicians, but it should be noted that it's during these attacks that casualties are quite common. This is necessary, though, because if you can secure gun barrel approval from military and political leaders outside of your coup, this will create a snowball effect. Junior ministers will fall in line, 
not wanting to lose their jobs or their brain matter. If your country has a ceremonial head of state, like a king, emperor, or official mascot, now is the time to wheel their decrepit bones out and receive their gun barrel blessing. And once you're done with that, it's time to convince everyone that everything is all good, man. <laughs> Announcing your coup to the country you've just stolen is a delicate balancing act that even the most savvy political operator will find challenging. Unlike a post-election victory speech, you aren't just celebrating that you've won, you are convincing everyone that you have. An election victory is decisive, where a coup is still pretty squishy in its first few days, so you'll want to do everything you can to project strength and stability. The biggest threat to your regime is still the guy you've just deposed, so you might be tempted to keep things simple and depose his head from his body. Not so fast. Your predecessor might be your biggest threat, but they are also your biggest asset. Using the previous incumbent as a meat puppet is a must. It legitimizes your rule and provides a sense of stability and legitimacy that can never be underestimated. But make sure they keep it short. You only want them to communicate three basic things. The coup has happened, it was decisive, and you are the big man now. In the age of social media and memes, meat puppetry has never been easier, and 2023's coup in Gabon provides us with a textbook example. As you know, President Ali Bongo was drummed out of office by the military. He had inherited his presidency from his daddy, Omar Bongo, who had ruled the country since 1967 until his death in 2009. The Bongo family had overstayed their welcome, with an oversized impact on the country's recent history which is what made his gunpoint concession speech so funny. Ali Bongo, on Yuba, president of Gabon, and I'm to send a message to all the friends that we have all over the world to tell them to make noise, to make noise, for the people here have arrested me. Shot from above to make him look small and in vertical to make the whole thing seem quite trivial. In just 42 seconds, a Gabonese dynasty was finished in the same format as a pimple-popping TikTok. He tried to get a quick rallying cry in there. To tell them to make noise, to make noise. But this was immediately turned into a meme, as the people of Gabon danced to the beat of the bongo's demise. Now on to your first presidential address. If you've done it for the glory, this is your moment. Savor it. If you've done it for the money and power, this will be a boring chore that you'll need to get out of the way pronto, but you will need to take the right tone. Lutwak suggests that there are four basic tones that coup announcements tend to take. The romantic, the messianic, the unprepared, and the administrative. Whatever tone you do choose to take, you are there to establish stability. There should be no question that the coup is over and that you are in charge now. I stand before you not as a conqueror, but as the uncontested and universally approved leader. All that conquering is in the past, done and dusted many minutes ago. The old leader is gone. It's out with the old and in with the you. This is inherently destabilizing, so try to associate your leadership with symbols of national pride and unity. This new regime stands strong and proud, like St. Stephen's Tower. It's refreshing, like a pint of lager from your favorite pub. My rise to power may have been violent, but in a cool James Bond kind of way, not in a Nazi Germany kind of way, which this country proudly defeated and hasn't stopped going on about since. 
Oh, and never use the word coup. That's a dead giveaway, isn't it? In fact, try to avoid any specific political jargon. You're going for broad appeal, not accuracy. Instead, use easy-to-understand metaphors about new dawns, rebirth, and ships being steadied. Actually, use as many nautical terms as you can. A stronger hand was required to steer the ship through these rough waters. The previous captain was seasick, and I heard he was screwing the cabin boy in the poop deck. For the stupider viewers, it will be important to emphasize that this is not an invasion by a foreign force, especially if it was indeed funded by one. Rumors that Russia fueled my revolution are baseless, and those photos of me sunbathing with Putin are as photoshopped as they are erotic. You only need to subtly imply that resistance will be met with swift and bloody retaliation. A picture speaks a thousand words, and images of tanks parked outside Parliament will speak a million. If there is any visible resistance on the streets, it is better to acknowledge its existence now, but imply that they are isolated instances that will be dealt with. There will be those who resist, who want to take us back into the past, but this new regime is like a bullet. It only moves forward. Your short-term aim is to enforce public order so that in the long term, you can control the masses without physical force. So in the material content of your speech, you will announce a curfew of the capital, shut down communications and close all public buildings. Oh, and by the way, no leaving your home after five. The internet will be inaccessible for the next 48 hours, so maybe try reading a fucking book for once. But not from the library, because um, they'll all be shut. All right, peace out. Fucking Congratulations! If you followed every step to the letter, you are now the leader of your very own country. Commission some propaganda tunes, throw a party, and force everyone to enjoy it. And hey, make sure you have some fun yourself, because who knows how long all this is going to last anyway. Yeah, probably should have mentioned this earlier, but um, now that you've cooed, you have drastically increased the likelihood that someone will coo you. This is a phenomenon known in academic literature as the coo trap. You have started a precedent for any other power-mad scamp with similar aspirations to you. Lucky for you, coup-proofing, in the short term, is relatively simple. First, announce some populist economic policies. Bread for the poor, circuses for the simpletons, and natural resource extraction rights for powerful business figures, or for America if they funded your shit. If there's any generals or political figures on your team that look a little crown-keen, I would advise um, murdering them immediately. Actually, sorry, you're the boss now, so these won't strictly be murders. They will be extrajudicial killings if you want to send a message, or unfortunate window-based accidents if you do not. If we're talking long-term strategy, you've got to face facts. Most regimes that begin with a brutal military uprising tend to have the longevity of a lab rat. The current crop of coup leaders who can sustain a multi-decade reign can be counted on one hand. President Ma Basogo of Equatorial Guinea has been in power since he cooed his own uncle back in 1979, but he's been fighting off coup attempts ever since. President Museveni of Uganda has held on to office since his badass Bush War in 1986, but by the look of it, he'll probably die in his office, literally. You may know that Myanmar's 2021 coup started like this, but it's hardly been a song and dance since then. Months before, the country held a general election, where Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD won in a landslide, while the military-backed party performed poorly. The coup was a hissy-fit Hail Mary, which resulted in Aung San's arrest 
and the military's eventual takeover. While technically successful, 2021's coup is a textbook example of why cooing a country with a popular leader isn't worth the trouble. Since then, the country has been plagued by guerrilla warfare, sectarian violence, mass protests, strikes, and expensive suppression campaigns. Myanmar is a big country full of brave, brilliant people who are just done with the junta's shit. At the time of recording, only 15 global heads of state have earned their position through a coup d'etat. And seven of those 15 have been in power for less than three years. With all this in mind, I reckon you've got two options for your post-coup success. The first option, pillage the country's coffers like a subway crackhead rifling through the pockets of a sleeping drunk. Set up shell companies in a British tax haven, embezzle state revenue, and transfer ownership of natural resource companies to your brother or wife, whoever you trust the most. Stay in power for a few years, then sail away on the presidential yacht with as much gold and hookers as it can carry. But most people never take my advice on this one. Power is addictive, apparently, and if Museveni and Mitch McConnell are any indicator, it might actually be some kind of life support system. So if you're dead set on keeping your claws on the crown, you should consider scheduling an election. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it, I, I know. But just hear me out, okay? The best way to avoid the coup trap is to subtly transition your military dictatorship into a democracy. The 2013 coup of Egypt ended in the resignation of the democratically elected Mohamed Morsi. He pushed forward with an unpopular Islamist agenda and mismanaged the economy, resulting in massive protests reminiscent of the ones that ousted previous President Mubarak two years prior. Defence Minister Abdel Fattah el-Sisi politely gave Morsi a 48-hour notice period, telling him to leave office. Morsi resisted, so el-Sisi booted him out with the help of the military he happened to command. Elections, though, were held the following year. And who won? Well, none other than the guy who'd done the coup in the first place. He's still in power now, and there hasn't been another military uprising since. When you think about it, winning an election in a country that you've just cooed is really the ultimate power move. You took the country by force and won the hearts of the people. All you've got to do is invade another country and you'll have scored the geopolitical hat-trick. Off the top of my head, I can only think of three people who've done the same. Julius Caesar, Napoleon and, well, Saddam Hussein. Imagine your name among that illustrious company. Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings of Ghana's Air Force actually conducted two coups, one in 79 and one in 81, the second of which overthrew the civilian government that he himself had installed. But Jerry was a charming mother When Jerry transitioned Ghana into a democracy for the second time, he was elected president. And after he retired, he lived a life of luxury and national respect until his death in 2020. Since Jerry's election, Ghana has only endured two pathetic failed coup attempts, and it remains one of the only stable democracies in Western Africa. Out of all the coup leaders I've read about, 
Jerry has the best batting average. Two expertly conducted coups and two landslide election victories. Now that is how you coup it. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Democracy is dirty. But in some cases it might be necessary for your survival. It legitimizes your rule in a way that a coup never can. Elections foster national unity and represent a fresh start that the people will always be thankful for. You have gifted them agency over their own destiny, an opportunity to build a better world for their children who will only know the previous generation's suffering. It's a story. And, you know, if it looks like you're going to lose the election, you can always rig it. Thanks for watching. Grind those bastards down, and I'll see you next time.